conversation in Matthew 19 is uh, intriguing to me. As I read about Jesus and this man and the conversation, the interaction that goes on between them, I feel like it stands in stark contrast with what uh, we have grown really, really familiar with. With modern church growth, quick conversion, easy discipleship styles of Christianity. Many of our modern methodologies of how we talk about faith and how we talk about following Jesus have worked really, really hard to try and portray the idea of some kind of simple method of explaining, of understanding, of following the path of Jesus. It's become common practice to us that we look for some quick sale, some easy, sure bet way that we can explain this is what the gospel looks like, this is what Jesus looks like, this is what following after Jesus looks like, uh, so that we can do it quick and easy and everyone wants a piece of it and they're going to take it and run with it and it's the most exciting thing they've ever heard. We've come to this place of talking about the gospel as easy, about following Jesus as something simple. Many of the ways in which we talk about faith these days seem to be focused on the idea that it's all gain and little or no sacrifice involved in it. And yet, as I read Matthew 19, as I read that story, Jesus' methods seem to look quite different. He didn't seem to be committed to the same ideas that dominate much of our understanding of how we talk about the gospel. Matter of fact, Jesus called this man to a way of following that was going to cost him everything. The bar was high. The expectations were lofty. And and that alone, hard part of the story to kind of swallow and go, wow, what's happening there? But even bigger for me is that as the man walked away, Jesus didn't chase him. He didn't run after him and make some effort to try and convince him. Oh, but yes, you should. This is what you want. This is what you want to be a part of. He didn't try and explain what had been misunderstood. Because I think many of us would say, well, surely there's some kind of misunderstanding. Or there's absolutely no way that this man would walk away from Jesus. But Jesus simply let the man go away. And the story says that he was sad as he left. Instead of chasing, instead of running, instead of trying to explain, we see as the man walks away that the disciples begin to ask a lot of questions that perhaps we might, that perhaps we do as we read the story. Jesus, why did you let him go? Jesus, why did you ask for such a great sacrifice? Is what you're asking of this man even possible for him, for us, for anyone Jesus, is this, this, this thing, this calling, this message, this, this gospel that you keep talking about, is it really going to sell when it costs people this much? Are you sure the return on investment is sufficient? Any of you? Some of those questions, maybe? This means yes, this means no. As I told you when we started, the story's not new to me. 
Uh, I've read it many times. I've surely taught it plenty of times. I didn't look back and see, but I know that I have because it's a story that I'm so incredibly familiar with. And yet each time I return to it, I am newly challenged. Each time I return to the story, I stand in awe of the call of Jesus. Not just the call that's on this man, but the call that also comes on my life too. Each time I return to the story, I have to reevaluate my own journey to follow Jesus. Each time I come to the story, I have to reassess my own commitment to Christ. N.T. Wright is a a well-known New Testament scholar, and he's written this great set of commentaries that I look at quite frequently. Um, And in his commentary on Matthew, as he's talking about this passage, he gives us some really important insights to help us grasp this conversation in a new way. I think this story is one of those that as we read it, we run into some struggles fully understanding all that's going on. Our English translations... How words are put together and what they mean to us versus what they would have meant to uh, first readers or to early hearers helps us struggle. Some of our theological understandings, our theological shortcomings, cause us to struggle to fully grasp the depths of this interaction. One of those ways is that I think we struggle understanding what this man was actually asking Talked about the differences between this conversation and many modern uh, methods uh, of trying to communicate the gospel or talk about evangelism or faith or following Jesus. I think that because of many of our modern practices and our understandings of what's going on, we might miss the weight of the topic at hand. We might miss the weight of the conversation that they're having about salvation. Because somewhere in the history of evangelicalism, that, that would be us, evangelicals who are part of wanting to tell people about Jesus and spread the good news. Somewhere in the history of that, we shifted the focus so that much, if not all, of what we talked about in our practices of talking about the gospel was life after death. Was the idea of salvation in an afterlife. Salvation so that it secures some life after this life. So as we read Matthew chapter 19, as we look at verse 16, which says this. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? We often assume that his question is about making sure he goes to heaven when he dies. That all he really wants to make sure is taken care of is, have I done enough that I get to heaven when I die? And yet, that's not actually what either of these men had in mind as they had this conversation. For them, the talk of heaven, the talk of the kingdom of heaven, even this talk of eternal life, which kind of bounces in and out of the conversation as it goes on, wasn't talking about some far off place where God dwelt. And people hoped to one day end up after life here. In fact, when we think about eternal life that way, when we think about the kingdom of heaven that way, we have taken what Jesus is talking about and we've shrunk it down to something far less than what Jesus had in mind. Far less than the conversation that was taking place here. Because neither Jesus nor the man believed that that's what was going on. Neither one of them thought that that's what they were talking about. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, he wasn't simply asking about how to go to heaven after he died. The phrase, kingdom of heaven, doesn't mean that. 
It means God's sovereign saving rule coming to transform everything. Coming to bring the whole creation into a new state of being. A new life in which evil, decay, and death itself will be done away with. Many, perhaps most Jews of Jesus' day, believed that Israel's God would do this. And would do it very soon. This man believed that God had dreams of making life here and now, the life he was living, the life he was in, far better than it was already. This man believed that God wanted to do miraculous works of redemption in the here and now. That God had incredible work in mind and that that was going to take place very soon right where he was. This is actually supposed to be a core tenet of our Christian belief. I'm not sure that all of us have it, but it's supposed to be a core tenet of our Christian belief. That we believe that life is far better with Jesus. Here, now, and forevermore, far better with Jesus than life without Jesus. And the idea is that we should be convinced that that is true. So eternal life or salvation or the kingdom of heaven is not some far off place that we hope to end up someday. Instead, as we read the passage talk about eternal life, we're supposed to think about life with Jesus now and forevermore. Excuse me. As we think about salvation, salvation is this opportunity that we have to journey with Jesus. It is the rescue that Jesus has brought us and then invited us to continue to walk with him. And why in the world would we want to delay that to some kind of afterlife as opposed to living in it right now and forevermore? This man wanted to know who it was that would see the benefits of this New life. We know those words, right? This new life that God was bringing here. He wanted to know, had he done enough to qualify? Had he done enough that he would experience? What more did he have to accomplish in order to be one of the ones that got to experience this new life? This this kingdom of heaven, this eternal life that God was bringing to him now and forevermore. What did he have to do in order to be there? And that's when we enter what I think becomes the second major stumbling block for us. It's the use of this word, perfect. Man, that's a hard word, isn't it? How do we become perfect, which is what Jesus asks the man if he wants to do? We talk about perfectionists as being perfect, right? I've never actually heard the term perfectionist used in a complimentary way towards someone. When it's coming at me, it's never meant as a compliment. And yet, so many of us are caught in this pursuit of perfection. We want perfect homes and perfect kids. We want perfect jobs and perfect spouses. We want perfect students. We want perfect athletes. The list goes on and on and on and on of all the ways in which we desire things to be perfect. And this pursuit of perfection in our lives is causing us incredible amounts of increased anxiety. It's bringing a whole host of other things down on us that are difficult for us to handle and understand. It is damaging us emotionally, physically, relationally, 
communally, globally. It's destroying life for so many of us. So it pushes us to wonder, right? If that's the case, how is it that Jesus could ask us to be perfect? Why would he call us or this man to be perfect? This is where that English language thing begins to become a problem. And as we read the text, we have to be intentional every time we read a passage to make sure that we understand the differences in what the word means to us and what the word perhaps is supposed to mean in the text. Because this time, the use of the word perfect is supposed to mean something different than we typically understand. Because perfect, the Greek word used that gets translated perfect, also means complete or mature. So N.T. Wright says this, he says, God wants his people to be complete totally dedicated to his service. Not half and half people with one foot in the kingdom and the other in the world. And this is the crux of Jesus' message to this man and to us. Following Jesus is not a practice that we perfect. Salvation is not something that we can earn with right behavior. Salvation cannot be maintained by us continuing to follow the rules, even though that's what this man was trying to do. And he was a phenomenal rule follower. He spent his life following all the rules. Jesus gave a list of some of the the commandments that came straight out of the Hebrew Scripture, straight out of the Old Testament. The man says, well, I've done all of that. I know all of that. What else is there? There has to be more. He was a great rule follower. He'd spent his life following the rules, but he wanted to be certain that that was sufficient. So Jesus told him what was expected. And in verse 21, it says, Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect. Again, remember, complete, fully mature. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus asks for an all-in commitment. Jesus asked that this man completely reorient his life towards Jesus, that he stop trying to stop striving to acquire or attain salvation, that he give up everything important to him and follow after Jesus. Man, didn't Rick start us with some great songs this morning? Give me Jesus. Everything else, I'll push it away. Come to that song and I wonder how many of us should stop singing and just shut our mouths because we don't actually mean that we want that. And yet that's the proclamation of the song and that's the call of Jesus. That we give up everything that's important to us. The call of following Christ is that you and I, that this man walk through a complete reorientation. That we walk, through, that we walk away from everything that's important to us and we choose Jesus instead. That our time and our relationships, that our jobs and our money, that our goals, that everything would be reoriented away in a way that they're fully submitted to following after Jesus. They're, that they're fully committed to us becoming all that Jesus has called us to be. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. This is the way of salvation. This is the way of Christ. This man wanted to experience everything that God had to offer. And yet we get the understanding from the conversation that his wealth was standing in his way. His money was distracting him. His possessions were taking all of his focus and all of his energy and all of his commitment. His orientation in life, his focus, his goal, his pursuit was about acquiring. It was about acquisition. He wanted to acquire money. 
He wanted to acquire more things. He wanted to acquire more wealth. He wanted to acquire more, more security. And we find here he even wanted to acquire salvation. Now, we can make a mistake with this passage. And if we continue to read a little further, there's some other kind of things that come up that are talking about money that cause us to struggle with what is it Jesus is saying? What is it he's trying to get to? So let me say this quickly so that you know that this is true. Jesus is not anti-money. In fact, this is one of few situations we find in the scripture that Jesus tells someone that they have to sell all of their possessions. Jesus is not anti-money. That's not the point of the passage. That's not his message to the man. But get this. Jesus is anti-anything that we try and add Jesus onto. Jesus is absolutely unwilling to be an accessory to our primary life pursuit. If our primary life pursuit is something other than Jesus, he's opposed to being an accessory that's added on. And yet so many of us live life exactly this way. But the way of the kingdom, the way of Christ, the way of salvation is that we surrender everything else and we choose Jesus. And in order for us to get there, in order for us to do that, I think that many of us need to walk back through an intentional time of reorientation. A time where we look at all of the things in our life that have our focus, all of the things that we're pursuing, all of the things that we're committed to, all of the things that we care about, all of the things that we're focused on, that we reevaluate every one of them and we give them to Jesus. And yes, sometimes it means that like this man, we're going to be called to give every bit of it away. That we have to get rid of this completely in order for, for us to truly be following after Jesus. Other times, it means that we're going to take those things and we're going to submit them to the way of Jesus. That we're going to surrender the lordship that they have in our life. And, oh, too very often, so many things become lords in our life. It means that we're going to surrender the lordship that those things have in our life. And we're going to choose Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord over those things and Jesus as Lord over us and over our life. So over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about a few areas that have a tendency to become Lords for us. That's James upstairs. He's all right. I don't know if he thought I said something funny or mom did something funny. But I love that he's in here also. Man, I love it. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about these areas that have become have a tendency to become lords for us, have a tendency to take priority in our lives, often inappropriately. Well, often. I don't know why I even use the word often. Anytime they become lords in our life, it is inappropriate. The way of following Jesus means Jesus is Lord and nothing else can be. So we're going to reevaluate a few of those things and we're going to talk about some habits that we could pursue as we enter a new year that might help us reorient our life. That might help us reorient our faith. That might help us focus more on making sure that we're living life fully surrendered to Jesus. And in line with this passage, we're going to start today with just a few minutes of talking about our money. There's a debated and even sometimes criticized biblical practice of a tithe that we find in the scriptures. And there's all kinds of questions about what goes on with that tithe and how are we supposed to think about it now and what are we supposed to do with it now. And there's different issues and arguments and some say that this practice was an Old Testament only practice, that it coincided with the idea of the now unnecessary physical sacrifices. Some will talk about the reality that a tithe is never specifically mentioned in the New Testament. 
And when we talk about a tithe, we're talking about 10% of our income. And some would say it's never mentioned in the New Testament. So it, it went away with temple worship, and that's no longer the way in which we're supposed to be living our life. Some will argue about whether or not it's supposed to be 10% or if it's supposed to be something different or if it's supposed to be less or it's supposed to be more. There's all kinds of conversations we could have about that. Some would say that the conversation of a tithe was never actually specifically talking about the local church, but that it was talking about something else entirely. And we can walk through each of these issues and we can have some debate on them. And I have a point, I have a perspective and maybe you have a perspective. And the truth is in all of that conversation, we may or may not get to the end and actually agree. So we're not going to debate those topics. I know they're there. I know they're questions. I know they're questions lots of people ask. So I'm not going to debate those topics. Instead, I want to say this this morning. Like it or not, believe it or not, wrestle whether it's a New Testament practice or not, a rule that we're supposed to follow or not. I believe that the continued spiritual practice of giving a tithe to the local church is significant in our faith life. And I'm not going to look for a rule and I'm not going to try and prove whether or not the arguments go one way or another. I'm just going to say it is a significant spiritual practice. In fact, I think little helps reorient our focus on money like giving 10% of our money, of our income, away to the church. I'm not sure what helps us reorient our thinking on finances as well as that does. I can't find a spiritual practice that does, honestly. When the tithe... When 10% of our income is a non-negotiable in our life, when it's not a conversation we're having, when it's not something we're debating over, it changes the way we think about spending money. It changes the way we think about budgeting. It changes the way we think about our commitment to Jesus. It changes the way we think about our dependence on wealth. When we are intentionally committed, non-negotiable, to committing 10% of our income towards the church, it pushes us to a new place of dependence on Jesus. And yet, it's really, really hard. When money's tight, it's hard to be committed to giving to the church before you pay the light bill. Before you pay your mortgage, before you pay your tuition, before you pay whatever else it is that's on your budget. And yet if you and I are willing to do so, it will make us more intentional about all of the money we spend and how we spend it. It will make us more thoughtful about the places where we spend our money and whether we do or don't want to spend in those ways. It will make us more creative about how we do meals about what we do with gifts to other people, about how we spend time around people that we love. Because when there is just less to work with, we start thinking about new things and new ideas and new practices and new ways in which we can communicate love to other people. The truth is, when we feel the pinch of the tithe, I think it helps us redirect our eyes, our mind, our heart, our soul, our entire life towards Jesus. Because every time we sit down to budget, and Callie and I sit and we budget every month. 
We have a piece of software that we use, and every month we sit and we reevaluate the budget, and we don't even have a conversation about what's happening with regards to our tithing unless at some point we're debating whether or not we want to increase that beyond what that, that has been, beyond 10%. But otherwise, it's automatic in our budget, and then we sit and we try and figure out how to make everything that's left fill in the spots that we need. And we give less here or more there in order to make all of that take place. And when we do so, it pushes us to a place of new commitment on Jesus. Like fasting. When we fast and we feel the pains of hunger, in the middle of the day we've gotten hungry but we're walking through this intentional practice of fasting, it pushes us to be reminded of Jesus, right? Now, some of you have never experienced a fast. I, I don't enjoy them at all. They're very, very difficult for me. But every time I do so and my stomach begins to grumble... I'm reminded that I've given this day to Jesus. That there's a reason that I'm not eating. That I'm being intentional about my focus and it helps redirect us. It reminds us of our dependence on the Savior. As my stomach gets hungry when I'm fasting, I'm reminded of how deeply I need Jesus more than I need food. I'm reminded of how thankful I am for the many blessings that I have. That more often than not, I'm not fasting. I'm eating a meal that God has provided. And the same thing happens when you and I are willing to tithe. When we feel the pinch of money, rather than getting angry or grumbling, it gives us this opportunity to look back to God and to remember the multitude of ways which we've been blessed. It gives us the opportunity to look back to Jesus and say, oh yeah, this is what I've committed my entire life to, including all of the money in my pocket. We also know, I believe that this is true, and I believe that the scriptures remind us over and over again, something powerful happens in our life and in our faith when we're willing to make these kinds of bold commitments to Jesus. Something powerful happens in us when we walk through a process of reorientation, of focusing all of our life on Jesus and who Jesus has called us to be. When you and I are truly committed to fully surrendering all of our life to Jesus, our money, our time, our relationships, all of our life, God shows up in miraculous and unexpected ways. It's true when we do so with our finances. It's true when we do so with so many other areas. So again, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about some other habits. But as we begin this year, as we talk about the idea of a reorientation, as we talk about focusing our life on Jesus and looking back to that, the challenge for us to start with is for you to think about what would it look like for you to reorient the way you think about money. And I think the most intentional, and I'm looking for a word that I can't find, the practice, the habit that will help you stay faithful in that reorientation it's through the consistent giving of a tithe. It's through deciding that this will be a part of your practice as you begin this year. And that you'll just do it. And you'll watch for God to show up. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to give you a tool that we create at the beginning of each year. And we send it with giving statements. And we even send it to those of you who are part of our Valley family but haven't given in the last year. We'll send you a tool that will help you look uh, at a simple practice, at a simple worksheet of how you might think about setting up your 2020 finances so that you can give faithfully to the church. And I want to encourage you to pursue the idea of giving a tithe. As a matter of fact, let me add this challenge. It's not in my notes. I thought about doing something like this and then I changed my mind and decided I wasn't going to. 
Make a commitment that you will be a part of tithing as you begin the year. And commit that you'll do it for three months or six months. Decide ahead of time how long you're going to do it. And at the end of that time, I want to challenge you to look back and reflect. See if you can see evidence of where God has been faithful. Where God has shown up in miraculous and unexpected ways because you've been willing to give a tithe every time without question, no matter what else got in the way. And if God has not shown up, stop giving. Just quit. I am that absolutely convinced that he will. Now that doesn't mean that once you start tithing, you're going to win the lottery. Not what we're talking about here. And if you, if you take that challenge and you get three months down the road or six months down the road and you need to come back and visit with me and say, hey, God didn't show up. Talk to me about why he didn't and what's going on. We'll have a conversation about what that actually means. It doesn't mean you won the lottery. It doesn't mean you were able to buy a house three times the square footage of what you currently have because you want it. That's not the point. The point is God shows up. And I don't know how to explain it and I don't know what's going on. And it's not this kind of health and wellness type thing. It's not. It's just... God shows up when you and I surrender our lives, including our money, to Jesus. Now, as I talk about money, I have to be honest. Every time I do so, as your pastor, you giving 10% of your income to the church makes a difference to our bottom line as a church. No doubt about it. It makes a difference on what we can and cannot do. And some of you will walk out saying, well, there went his talk about how he needs to get more money to make sure we're paying his salary. Nope, has absolutely nothing to do with it. Yes, it makes a difference. Sure, I can't lie and say that it doesn't. It does make a difference, but it is way more important to me that you and I understand that surrendering our finances to Jesus allows us to begin this process of becoming more perfect. Not a perfect that we can attain, but a perfect completeness. That the Holy Spirit wants to work in us and all of creation if we're willing to reorient our lives towards following Jesus. And I believe that this habit, that this practice, that this regular commitment and rhythm and routine of giving a tithe will significantly impact your life, your faith, your commitment to Jesus. And there's nothing I hope more for you as we begin 2020. As we begin a new year, a new decade, a new chance for reorientation. My hope is that you will experience the unbelievable, unimaginable, miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. Out of a willingness to fully surrender all of your life to Jesus. And today we start with talking about how that impacts our money. Pray with me, would you? Jesus, I thank you for the multitude of blessings that you've given me. For a job... For income, for money so that we can pay our bills and feed our kids, we thank you. Because God, I believe that you
have made all of that possible. So God, as, as I begin this year, as we begin this year, I pray that you would give us courage to walk through a process of reorientation. To reorient all of our life towards following after Jesus and to think about how that might also impact our money. God, give us courage to fully surrender to following after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.